Chapter Eight of Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. Chapter Eight. Undercover. Part One. Unseen Forces. Uh, we come across the channel for to wallop Germany. But they haven't got no soldiers. Not that anyone can see. They plug us with their rifles, and they let their shrapnel fly. But they never takes a pot at us, exceptin' on the sly. Chorus. Fritzy, when you comin' out, this what you calls a fight? You won't never get to Calais. Always keepin' out of sight. We're a-goin' back to Blighty. What's the use of waitin' here? Like a lot of bloomin' mudlarks for old Fritzy to appear. He never puts his napper up above the parapet. We've been in France for seven months, and haven't seen him yet. So sang Tommy, the incorrigible parodist, during the long summer days and nights of 1915, when he was impatiently waiting for something to turn up. For three months and more we were face to face with an enemy whom we rarely saw. It was a weird experience. Rifles cracked, bullets zip-zipped along the top of the parapet, Great shells whistled over our heads or tore immense holes in the trenches. Trench-mortar projectiles and hand-grenades were hurled at us, and yet there was not a living soul to be seen across the narrow strip of no-man's land, whence all this murderous rain of steel and lead was coming. Daily we kept careful and continuous watch, searching the long, curving line of German trenches and the ground behind them with our periscopes and field-glasses and nearly always with the same barren result. We saw only the thin wreaths of smoke rising, morning and evening, from trench fires, the shattered trees, the forlorn and silent ruins, the long grass waving in the wind. Although we were often within two hundred yards of thousands of German soldiers, rarely further than four hundred yards away, I did not see one of them until we had been in the trenches for more than six weeks and then only for the interval of a second or two. My German was building up a piece of damaged parapet. I watched the earth being thrown over the top of the trench, when suddenly a head appeared, only to be immediately withdrawn. One of our snipers had evidently been watching, too. A rifle cracked, and I saw a cloud of dust arise where the bullet clipped the top of the parapet. The German waved his spade defiantly in the air, and continued digging but he remained discreetly under cover thereafter. This marked an epoch in my experience in a war of unseen forces. I had actually beheld a German, although Tommy insisted that it was only the old caretaker. The bloke what keeps the trenches tidy. This mythical personage, a creature of Tommy's own fancy, assumed a very real importance during the summer when the attractions at the Western Theater of War were only mildly interesting. Carl the caretaker was supposed to be a methodical old man whom the Emperor had left in charge of his trenches on the Western Front during the absence of the German armies in Russia. Many were the stories told about him at different parts of the line. Sometimes he was endowed with a family. His missus and his three little nippers were with him, and together they were blocking the way to Berlin of the entire British army. Sometimes he was Hans the Grenadier, owing to his fondness for nightly bombing parties. 
Sometimes he was Minnie's husband, Minnie being the redoubtable lady known in polite military circles as Minin Wifer. As already explained, she was sausage-like in shape, and frightfully demonstrative. When she went visiting at the behest of her husband, Tommy usually contrived to be not at home, whereupon Minnie wrecked the house and disappeared in a cloud of dense black smoke. One imagines all sorts of monstrous things about an unseen enemy. The strain of constantly watching and seeing nothing became almost unbearable at times. We were often too far apart to have our early morning interchange of courtesies, and then the constant <laughs> of bullets annoyed and exasperated us. I, for one, welcomed any evidence that our opponents were fathers and husbands and brothers, just as we were. I remember my delight one fine summer morning at seeing three great kites soaring above the German line. There is much to be said for men who enjoy flying kites. Once they mounted a dummy figure of a man on their parapet. Tommy had great sport shooting at it, the Germans jiggling its arms and legs in a most laughable manner whenever a hit was registered. In their eagerness to get a good bead on the figure, the men threw caution to the winds and stood on the firing benches, shooting over the top of the parapet. Fritz and Hans were true sportsmen while the fun was on, and did not once fire at us. Then the dummy was taken down, and we returned to the more serious game of war, with old deadly earnestness. I recall such incidents with joy, as I remember certain happy events in childhood. We needed these trivial occurrences to keep us sane and human. There were not many of them, but such as there were. We talked of for days and weeks afterward. As for the matter of keeping out of sight, there was a good deal to be said on both sides. Although Tommy was impatient with his prudent enemy, and sang songs twitting him about always keeping under cover, he did not usually forget, in the daytime at least, to make his own observations of the German line with caution. Telescopic sights have made the business of sniping an exact science. They magnify the object aimed at many diameters, and if it remains in view long enough to permit the pulling of a trigger, the chances of a hit are almost one hundred percent. 2. THE BUTT-NOTCHER Snipers have a roving commission. They move from one part of the line to another, sometimes firing from carefully concealed loopholes in the parapet, sometimes from snipers' nests in trees or hedges. Often they creep out into the tall grass of no-man's land. There, with a plentiful supply of food and ammunition, they remain for a day or two at a time, lying in wait for victims. It was a cold-blooded business, and hateful to some of the men. With others, the passion for it grew. They kept tally of their victims by cutting notches on the butts of their rifles. I will well remember the pleasant June day when I first met a butt-notcher. I was going for water to an old farmhouse about half a mile from our sector of trench. It was a day of bright sunshine. Poppies and buttercups had taken root in the banks of earth heaped up on either side of the communication trench. They were nodding their heads as gaily in the breeze as of old wordsmith daffodils in the quiet countryside at Royal Mount. It was a joy to see them there, reminding one that God was still in his heaven. 
whatever might be wrong with the world, it was a joy to be alive, a joy which one could share unselfishly with friend and enemy alike. The colossal stupidity of war was never more apparent to me than upon that day. I hated my job, and if I hated any man, it was the one who had invented the murderous little weapon known as the machine-gun. I longed to get out on top of the ground. I wanted to lie at full length in the grass, for it was June, and nature has a way of making one feel the call of June, even from the bottom of a communication trench seven feet deep. Flowers and grass peep down at one, and white clouds sail placidly across the strip of blue we prisoners call the sky. I felt that I must see all of the sky and see it at once. Therefore I set down my water-cans, one on top of the other, stepped up on them, and was soon over the top of the trench, crawling through the tall grass towards a clump of willows about fifty yards away. I passed two lonely graves, with their wooden crosses hidden in depths of shimmering, wavering green, and found an old rifle, its stock weather-warped, and the barrel eaten away with rust. The ground was covered with tin cans, fragments of shell-casing, and rubbish of all sorts. But it was hidden from view. Man had been laying waste the earth during the long winter, and now June was healing the wounds with flowers and cool green grasses. I was sorry that I went to the willows, for it was there that I found the sniper. He had a wonderfully concealed position, which was made bulletproof with steel plates and sandbags all covered so naturally with growing grass and willow bushes that it would have been impossible to detect it at a distance of ten yards. In fact, I would not have discovered it had not been for the loud crack of a rifle sounding so close at hand. I crept on to investigate and found the sniper looking quite disappointed. "'Mr. Blighter,' he said. Then he told me that it wasn't a good place for a sniper's nest at all. For one thing, it was too far back, nearly a half-mile from the German trenches. Furthermore, it was a mistake to plant a nest in a solitary clump of willows such as this. A clump of trees offers too good an aiming mark for artillery. Much better to make a position right out in the open. However, so far he had not been annoyed by shell-fire. A machine-gun had searched for him, but he had adequate cover from machine-gun fire. But, blimey! You ought to heard em a row when the bullets was a-smackin' against the sandbags. Somebody was a-knockin' at the door, I give you my word. However, it wasn't such a dusty little coop, and he had a good field of fire. He had registered four hits during the day, and he proudly displayed four new notches on a badly notched butt in proof of the fact. There's a big ole where the artillery pushed in their parapet last night. That's where I caught my last one. About half an hour ago, the bloke goes by every little while and forgets to duck his napper. Take your field glasses and watch me clip the next one. Quarter left it is. This side of the old house with the old in the wall. I focused my glasses and waited. Presently he said in a very cool, matter-of-fact voice, There's one coming. See him? He's carrying a plank. You can see it sticking up above the parapet. He's a-goin' to get a nasty one if he don't duck when he comes out of that hole. I found the moving plank and followed it along the trench as it approached nearer and nearer to the opening. 
and I was guilty of the most unprofessional conduct, for I kept thinking as hard as I could. Duck, Fritzy, whatever you do, duck when you come to that hole. And surely enough he did. The plank was lowered into the trench just before the opening was reached, and the top of it reappeared again a moment later, on the other side of the opening. The sniper was greatly disappointed. Now wouldn't that give you the camel's ump, he said. I believe you're a joner for me, matey. Presently another man carrying a plank went along the trench, and he ducked too. Grease off, Jerry, said the butt-notcher. You're bringing me bad luck. However, they probably got the place tapped. They lost one man there, and they won't lose another, not if they knows it. I talked with many snipers at different parts of the line. It was interesting to get their points of view, to learn what their reaction was to their work. The butt-notchers were very few. Although snipers invariably took pride in their work, it was the sportsman pride in good markmanship rather than the love of killing for its own sake. The general attitude was that of a corporal whom I knew. He never fired hastily, but when he did pull the trigger, his bullet went true to the mark. He can't help feeling sorry for the poor blighters, he would say, but it's us or them, and every one you knocks over means one of our blokes saved. I have no doubt that the Germans felt the same way about us. At any rate, they thoroughly believed in a policy of attrition, and in carrying it out, they often wasted thousands of rounds in sniping every yard of our parapet. The sound was deafening at times, particularly when there were ruined walls of houses or a row of trees just back of our trenches. The ear-splitting reports were hurled against them, and seemed to be shattered into thousands of fragments, the sound rattling and tumbling on until it died away far in the distance. 3. Night Routine Meanwhile, like fugitive inhabitants of an infamous underworld, we remained hidden in our lairs in the daytime, waiting for night when we could creep out of our holes and go about our business under cover of darkness. Sleep is a luxury indulged in but rarely in the first-line trenches. When not on sentry duty at night, the men were organized into working parties and sent out in front of our trenches to mend the barbed-wire entanglements which are being constantly destroyed by artillery fire or in summer to cut the tall grass and the weeds which would otherwise offer concealment to enemy listening patrols or bombing parties. Ration fatigues of twenty or thirty men per company went back to meet the battalion transport wagons at some point several miles in the rear of the firing line. There were trench supplies and stores to be brought up as well, and the never-finished business of mending and improving the trenches kept many off-duty men employed during the hours of darkness. The men on duty in front of the trenches were always in very great danger. They worked swiftly and silently, but they were often discovered in which case the only warning they received was a sudden burst of machine-gun fire. Then would come the urgent calls for stretcher-bearers. As soon as the wreckage was brought in over the parapet, the stretchers were set down in the bottom of the trench, and hasty examinations made by the light of a flash-lamp. Where he caught it? Here it is. Do the leg. Take his puttee off, one of you. Easy now, it's smashed to the bone. Stick it, matey. We'll soon have you as right as rain. For God's sake, boys, go easy as giving me l. Let up, let up just a, a minute. 
Many a conversation of this sort did we hear at night, when the field dressings were being put on. But even in his suffering, Tommy never forgot to be unrighteously indignant if he had been wounded when on a working party. What could he say of to the women of England who would bring him fruit and flowers in hospital, call him a poor, brave fellow, and ask how he was wounded? He had enlisted as a soldier, and as a reward for his patriotism the government had given him a shovel. And here I am, working like a bloomin' navvy, fillin' sandbags full of France when I, and up and gets plugged. The men who most bitterly resented the pick-and-shovel phrase of army life, were given a great deal of it to do for that very reason. One of my comrades was shot in the leg while digging a refuse pit. The wound was a bad one, and he suffered much pain. But the humiliation was even harder to bear. What could he tell them at home? Do you think I'm going to say I was carrying a sandbag full of old jam tins back to the refuse pit when Fritzy gave me this air one in the leg? Not so bloomin' likely. I was afraid I'd get one like this. Ain't it a rotten bit of luck? If he had to be a casualty, Tommy wanted to be an interesting one. He wanted to fall in the heat of battle, not in the heat of inglorious fatigue duty. But there was more heroic work to be done, going out on listening patrol, for example. One patrol consisting of a sergeant or corporal, and four or five privates, was sent out from each company. It was the duty of these men to cover the area immediately in front of the company lines of trench, to see and hear without being discovered, and to report immediately any activity of the enemy, above or below ground, of which they might learn. They were on duty for from three to five hours, and might use a wide discretion in their prowlings, provided they kept within the limits of frontage allotted to their own company, and returned to the meeting-place where the change of relief was made. These requirements were not easily complied with, unless there were trees or other prominent landmarks standing out against the sky, by means of which the patrol could keep its direction. The work required above everything else cool heads, and stout hearts. There was the ever-present danger of meeting an enemy patrol or bombing party, in which case they could not be avoided. There would be a hand-to-hand -hand encounter with bayonets or a noisy exchange of hand grenades. There was danger, too, of a false alarm, started by a nervous sentry. It needs but a moment for such an alarm to become general. So great is the nervous tension at which men live on the firing line, Terrific fulsades from both sides followed while the listening patrols flattened themselves out on the ground and listened, in no pleasant frame of mind, to the bullets whistling over their heads. But at night, and under the stress of great excitement, men fire high. Strange as it may seem, one is comparatively safe even in the open when lying flat on the ground. Bombing affairs were of almost nightly occurrence. Tommy enjoyed these extremely hazardous adventures, which he called carrying a aperoth o eight to Fritzy, a halfpenny worth of eight, consisting of six or a dozen hand grenades, which he hurled into the German trenches from the far side of their entanglements. The more hardy spirits often worked their way through the barbed wire, and from his position, close under the parapet, they waited for the sound of voices. 
when they had located the position of the sentries they tossed their bombs over with deadly effect the sound of the explosions called forth an immediate and heavy fire from sentries near and far but lying close under the very muzzles of the german rifles the bombers were in no danger unless a party were sent out in search of them this of course constituted the chief element of risk the strain of waiting for developments was a severe one i have seen men come in from a bombing stunt worn out and trembling from nervous fatigue and yet many of them enjoyed it and were sent out night after night the excitement of the thing worked into their blood throughout the summer there was a great deal more digging to do than fighting for it was not until the arrival on active service of kitchener's armies that the construction of the double line of reserve or support trenches was undertaken from june until september this work was pushed rapidly forward there were also trenches to be made in advance of the original firing line for the purpose of connecting and advancing points and removing dangerous salients at such times there was no loafing until we had reached a depth sufficient to protect us both from view and from fire we picked and shoveled with might and main working in absolute silence, throwing ourselves flat on the ground whenever a trench rocket was sent up from the German lines. Casualties were frequent, but this was inevitable, working as we did in the open, exposed to every chance shot of an enemy sentry. The stretcher-bearers lay in the tall grass, close at hand, awaiting the whispered word, Stretchers-bearers! This way! And they were kept busy during much of the time we were at work, carrying the wounded, to the rear. It was surprising how quickly men became accustomed to the nerve-trying duties in the firing line. Fortunately for Tomary, the longer he is in the army, the greater becomes his indifference to danger. His philosophy is fatalistic. What is to be will be, is his only comment when one of his comrades is killed. A bullet or a shell works with such lightning speed the danger is past before one realizes it is at hand therefore men work doggedly carelessly and in the background of consciousness there is always the comforting belief common to all soldiers that others may be killed but somehow i shall escape the most important entrenched duty as well as the most wearisome one for men is the period of sentry go eight hours and twenty-four four two-hour shifts. Each man stands at his post on the firing line, rifle in hand, keeping a sharp lookout over the front yard. At night he observes as well as he can over the top of the parapet, in the daytime by means of his periscope. Most of our large periscopes were shattered by keen-sighted German snipers. We used a very good substitute, one of the simplest kind, a piece of broken pocket mirror placed on the end of a split stick and set up at an angle on top of the parados. During the two hours of sentry duty we had nothing to do other than keep watch and keep awake. The latter was by far the most difficult business at night. "'Here, sergeant!' Tommy would say as the platoon sergeant felt his way along the trench in the darkness. "'When is the next relief coming on? Your watch needs a good blacksmith. I've been on sentry three hours if I've been a minute.' Never you mind about my watch, son. You got another forty-five minutes to go. Well, you listen to that, you blokes. Say I could make you a better timepiece out of my old bully tin, I'm telling you straight. 
I'll be asleep when you come around again. But he isn't. Although the temptation may be great, Tommy isn't longing for a court-martial. When the platoon officer or the company commander makes his hourly rounds flashing his electric pocket lamp before him, he is ready with a cheery, Post all correct, sir. He whistles or sings to himself until, at last, he hears the platoon sergeant waking the next relief by whacking the soles of their boots with his rifle butt. Wake up here. Come along, my lads. Your century go. End of chapter 8